Before we get into our message for today, I want to make just a few comments about the gospel reading on page eight. If you would take a look at that with me, please. Uh, Notice this is from Luke chapter three, and the first two verses are really one long sentence. And the main clause in that long sentence is found midway through verse two, the word of God came to John. There's the subject and there's the verb. The word of God is the subject, came is the verb. That's the main clause. Everything else is subordinate to that. Everything else is less important. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important because the way Luke introduces John is the way the Old Testament introduces uh, the prophets of yesteryear, Jeremiah, Micah, and so on. For example, uh, the beginning of the book of Micah goes like this. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So the word of God would come, like a person would come, the word of God comes to the prophet, and he begins to speak God's word. Now, notice, the word of God comes to John in the same way it came to the Old Testament prophets. But the word of God never comes to Jesus. Why is that? Because he's the word. He's the word enfleshed for our salvation, enfleshed to die and to rise for you and for me. He is the word himself. And then, if you take a look at verses four through six, this is the prediction of John, and it describes the roadblocks to God's coming. The roadblocks are the sins that you and I commit. We put up roadblocks between ourselves and God, and God in his great mercy in Christ overcomes those roadblocks that we build. For example, verse five, every valley shall be filled. Uh, that to me is like a, a sin of omission. It's, a, it's the absence of something you should have done. That's like the valley being filled up. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. Those are the sins of commission, the, the things that we've done wrong that we should not have done. God's going to eliminate that roadblock as well. And then verses seven through nine, there's a lot one could say there, especially about the stones being raised up. Uh, You have to remember, uh, the Jewish people were stones that were raised up by God. Um, God told the people, remember the rock from which you were hewn, Abraham, right? You were cut out of the rock. God can raise up these Gentile stones to be my people, and in fact, he does, and we're evidence of that. But what I want you to see is verse 9. Even now, already, you see, already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That is to say, judgment is already underway. It's not just a future event, but the separation that Jesus causes in humanity is already underway. You see unbelievers filing off in one direction, and you see believers filing off in a different direction. We see that already in our culture. And Jesus is the dividing line. The judgment's already taking place 
It's not completed, thank God, but it's already here. It's already happening. And then verses 10 to 14 are interesting because they don't appear in any other gospel. These are examples of the fruits of repentance. A good tree bears good fruit. True religion always involves an amendment of life, a change of life. And notice, John does not tell the tax collectors to give up their occupation. For better or worse, we need tax collectors. Nor does he tell the soldiers that they must abandon their calling. We need soldiers as well. But what he says is that they need to conduct their calling justly, in a just manner, in a fair way, according to God's will, be a tax collector. According to God's will, be a soldier. And I think, finally, this point. It's interesting that the tax collectors have certain temptations that are peculiar to them. The soldiers have certain temptations peculiar to them that they need to repent of. You and I have temptations that are peculiar to you and to me and to no one else. We struggle with those temptations, just like the tax collectors and the soldiers do. And here's the point. You and I grow tired of whatever God has given us. We simply get used to whatever he's blessed us with. And we start looking for something else, whether it's a job, whether it's a spouse, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, we grow tired of what we've been given. And this is why the lesson ends with these words, and these words I want to focus on today, be content with your wages. You see, we all are tempted in different ways, unique ways. But what we all have in common is discontent with what God has given. doesn't matter what it is. We grow tired of it after a while. And that's the repentance that all of us need. All of us need to be content with what God has sent. And contentment's not something you and I are born with. As St. Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. Contentment is learned. We bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, bless your word to our hearts this day and every day. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. So point number one in your outline, this is page nine. Contentment is the state of, this is from the, the dictionary, okay. Contentment is the state of being mentally or emotionally satisfied with what you've been given. What you already have. It's being satisfied with the way things are. The way things are. Now let me ask you, does that describe you? Are you content with what you have? Just saying, okay? You know, I heard a story, actually it's a joke, about uh, an employer, a man, a wealthy man, he owned his own business, and he overheard one of his employees talking to another employee, and, and the employee was saying, 
man, if I just had $1,000, I'd be happy. You know, I could take care of this issue over here and, and I'd be content if I just had $1,000. And the employer walked up to the young man. He said, young man, he said, I've not found that all my money brings me any closer to happiness, but I'll tell you what I'll do. He takes out his checkbook and he writes the man a check for $1,000. He says, here, I hope this helps. The young man thanked him. And as he walked away, the young man muttered, I should have asked for 2000 <laughs> That's how we are, right? That's how we are. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says this, hell and destruction are never full. And so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Hell and destruction are never full. Neither are our eyes ever satisfied. So Roman numeral two, accumulation, accumulation never leads to contentment. Never leads to contentment. Letter A, whatever level of wealth you attain, you become habituated to it. That's a psychological term. You become habituated to it and dissatisfied. You become dissatisfied. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth be satisfied with his income. It's so true, it's so true. Now, habituation is a decreasing response to the same stimulus. In other words, you just get used to it, whatever it is. And this happens not only with things, it happens with people, right? <laughs> uh, habituation undermines relationships. Pretty soon, you know, you're, you're, you're used to the the people at home, you walk by them just like they're a piece of furniture you don't even notice. Familiarity breeds contempt, according to Aesop. I like Aesop. You ought, you ought to read Aesop. <laughs> Good stuff. It undermines relationships. Letter B. Contentment does not come naturally. Selfishness does. Selfishness does. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You have to teach them to share, but you don't have to teach them to be selfish. Letter C, discontent is sin. It is sin. It's a lack of faith in God. Dissatisfaction is love of the wrong things. It's a lack of faith in God. Uh, Jesus said, stop worrying about what you will eat or drink or wear. For the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, are preoccupied with those things. They're always seeking those things. And they're always becoming dissatisfied with whatever they've been given by God. Because because, and here's the point, they don't see God behind the gift. 
they disassociate the gift from God himself. And it's God's association with the gift that gives the gift the dignity it deserves. But they don't see that. And sometimes we don't either. Roman numeral three. Contentment is not about what you have, but whom you know. Whom you know. The Gentiles are preoccupied with these things. They're always chasing after these things, what they'll eat, drink, and wear. But your heavenly Father already knows you need them. He's already in the process of giving 24-7, whether you realize it or not. He's doing that for everybody, not just for Christians. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right, because the Lord is involved. Luther said it this way, those in positions of authority over us are masks of God. That is to say, the parent whom you just can't get along with right now is a mask of God. God stands behind the parent. God stands behind the president. God stands behind that authority whether you like the authority or not, the authority is a gift from God. God stands behind them. When you respect the authority, the office, you respect the giver of the office, God himself. God is tied up with every gift he gives. Letter A. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Keep your life free from covetousness. And be content with what you have. Well, how on earth will that ever happen? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord stands behind whatever you've been given. Whenever you look at the gift, I don't care whether it's a thing or a person, whenever you look at the gift, you better see the giver behind the gift. He gives it the dignity it deserves. Letter B, repentance is not just a change of mind, it is a change of life. It's a change of life resulting from faith in, in God's ability to provide for all your needs and here's the point, through Jesus Christ. God meets the needs of all the world through Jesus Christ. The, the needs of believers, the needs of unbelievers. The reason why God allows you to draw the next breath is that he has forgiven you in Christ. He's forgiven the world in Christ. The world may not believe that. The world may not receive that. The world may go to hell. But God did it for the world through Jesus. This is true of our spiritual needs. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you and I, the, the last thing you and I want from those around us or from God is condemnation or judgment or correction. It's the last thing we want. And it is freedom from that condemnation that God himself provides you and the world 
in Jesus Christ. But he meets not only our spiritual needs, he meets our temporal needs as well. And I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not together with him, together with him, freely give us all things? You see, everything you receive is tied to Christ. It's tied to Jesus. Together with him, God gives you all things. For his sake, God gives you all things, eternal and temporal, spiritual and material. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the common thread throughout every gift you and I possess. And seeing him attached to the gift gives it the dignity it deserves. Letter C. In paganism, contentment is having enough for oneself. In Christianity, contentment is having sufficient to share, sufficient to give. One of the few sayings of Jesus outside the, the Gospels is found in Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus is quoted as saying, it's more blessed, it's more, there's more contentment. It's more satisfying to give than to receive. Sharing God sufficient for you is what you need and enough to share with someone else. That's how God gives. And through that giving, God creates community. Letter D. Contentment is not found in isolation, but in community, which God creates through his own act of self-giving at the cross. God gives his beloved son to die for sinners, and he creates a community of forgiven sinners as a result. God reconciles us to himself through the death of his son, and that moves us to reconcile with one another when there's a falling out. And that reconciliation with one another is the greatest contentment any sinner can know, this side of heaven. It is the contentment of sins forgiven. It is the contentment of reconciliation. And it comes in Christ. Now in closing, I want to focus again on verses 10 to 14 of our gospel reading. They reveal, once again, that the temptations that we face are unique to us, but all of us have one temptation in common, and that is a decreasing satisfaction in or appreciation of whatever God has given. That happens over time. It will happen to you, it happens to me. We all grow tired of God's gifts and the antidote to this habituation is Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, together with him, freely give us all things? Everything God gives to you and to the world out there is given through and only through his son. God does not deal with you apart from Jesus Christ. He will not speak to you apart from Jesus Christ. He will not forgive you. He will not bless you eternally or temporally apart from Jesus Christ. So, 
when you find yourself no longer content with whatever God has sent you, whether it's your job, your coworkers, your paycheck, your parents, your spouse, remember the one who stands behind every one of those gifts, Jesus Christ himself. He is the antidote to our discontent, and it is his connection to each gift that gives it the dignity it deserves. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, amen.